Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast brought to you by ITL Coaching and Performance and Blue Pineapple Travel. This is George Darden. I'm an endurance athlete and coach here in Atlanta, Georgia. Normally, right at this moment, my podcast partner, Patrick Ollinger, would be tuning in saying that he is also an endurance athlete and coach here in Atlanta, Georgia, but this week I'm solo. Patrick is in California where today he successfully completed the California International Marathon. Um, Programming note, when you tune in next week, um, on next Sunday, the 9th of December, uh, he and I are going to be talking a little bit about the races that we both have run over the course of the last short while. So I'll be giving you a race report on the Philadelphia Marathon, which I ran two weeks ago. He'll be giving you a race report on the California International Marathon, which was today. We both had pretty successful races, and so we looked forward to talking to you about what went well in those builds and what went well in those race executions. Um, and then we're also going to add on a little bit about the uh, the Vaporfly 4%. Um, we've talked around the Vaporfly 4% and we've almost sort of like whispered about it a little bit on this podcast over the course of the last little while. We're going to talk about it directly here. Uh, we have both now run marathons in the Vaporfly 4%, which we both bought uh, a couple months ago. Uh, and so we're going to talk a little bit about the Vaporfly 4%. Speaking of programming, a lot of you last week heard our podcast on books and our book recommendations. Um, and we had a lot of good interaction on our Facebook page about various books that people have read and books that they recommended and stuff like that. Really, really, really appreciate that. It's funny because this week, um, this last week of November and into the first week of, of December, holiday gift guide suddenly kind of became all the rage. I felt like everywhere I looked, there was another holiday gift guide and, and, and specifically like book guides. Uh, on NPR, they, they put out their holiday book guides. There was actually 300 books that they recommended, which kind of felt a little bit overwhelming. And why are you going to recommend stuff? You recommend 300 of them. But anyway, um, the uh, the New York Times has a, a uh, email that they send out periodically that's a uh, uh, curated by a woman named Jen Miller, um, and she's pretty good. She actually ran the Philadelphia Marathon as well a couple of weeks ago, um, and her subject this week when she sent out was, hey, gifts you want to give to runners who are on your gift list for the holiday season here. Um, she recommended that you buy them finisher gear, which I think is a good suggestion, race photos, which I also think is a good suggestion, um, place-specific gear, which I thought was kind of cool. She said that if there's like a running specialty store that's specific to your area, um, buy them some gear from that running specialty store. Uh, she recommended hot hands, um, which I guess if you live in cold climates, those are those are pretty worthwhile there. She said that she held them for most of the Philadelphia Marathon, as a matter of fact, since it was 35 degrees throughout that time. And then, of course, she recommended books, and she went through some specific books. Uh, a few of the books are the same books that we talked about. How Bad Do You Want It by Matt Fitzgerald was on her list. Um, we mentioned Born to Run by Christopher McDougall, uh, and she suggested that one. I do think that's an interesting book, even though it's not one of my top books to recommend there. Uh, she also recommended uh, Once a Runner by John L. Parker Jr. She also recommended Let Your Mind Run by Dina Castor and others. Um, another one that she recommended that was also recommended by one of our listeners on our Facebook page uh, is called What I Talk About When I Talk About Running. And as it happens, I actually ordered that book this week and received that book in the mail just this weekend. It's by Haruki Murakami, um, who's an award-winning Japanese writer um, who's not known for writing about sports. He's a novelist and a poet. Um, and uh, he... 
uh, wrote a memoir essentially about running. And he said that over the course of several runs, over the course of several months, he just would finish up his runs and would just sort of scribble down what it was that he was writing. And he pulled it together into a memoir. And I've heard really good things about it. Um, I, I, I have not started reading it yet. And I realized actually in reflecting on the podcast that we did last week that we didn't actually talk about the books that we're currently reading um, the uh, and the books that we want to read in the future here. So I, I would have mentioned what I talk about when I talk about running. I should have said that uh, by Murakami because that was on my short list and it was on its way to my house when we were talking about last week. Um, uh, another one, uh, and I, like I said, I think that was on Jen Miller's list as well. Um, another one that's uh, on my list, uh, on my future list, is called 26 Marathons. It's by Meb Kofleski and Scott Douglas. Scott Douglas was the co-author of the book Advanced Marathoning by Pete Fitzinger that I mentioned last week. Uh, he wrote for Running Times for a long time, and he's an author that I appreciate and a runner that I appreciate as well. Um, Meb Kofleski, as you probably all will recall, has run 26 marathons, which is, of course, kind of poetic. Um, and so he uh, he says, here are 26 lessons from the 26 marathons I have run that you can apply to your 26.2-mile pursuits over the course of the next little while. Um, and so I, I, I look forward to reading that one. There's another book that he has done called Run to, Run to Overcome. I want to read that one as well. Um, I've mentioned Meb for Mortals, his book on this podcast, a few times. Um, and I got a lot, a lot out of that one. I thought it was very interesting. And then I had a short interview with Meb Kofleski, exclusive interview with Meb Kofleski at the finish line of the Philadelphia Marathon that I'll tell you about next week. And so that kind of fires me up for him even more. So a couple of his books I would add on my to-be-read list. Um, a book that was mentioned to me um, by a listener on the Facebook page is called The First Ladies of Running by Ambie Burfoot. Um, and that's popped up a few times on my recommended list on Amazon based on the books that I've been reading. Um, and I think I'm probably going to pick that one up as well. Uh, I'm a huge fan of Joan Benoit Samuelson, and that's Supposedly one of the best um, profiles you can find of her is in that book. Uh, and so I, I do want to check that out. It's written by a runner's world runner um, named Amby Burfoot. Uh, Amby Burfoot actually won the, the, the Boston Marathon way back in 1968. And interestingly enough, I'm currently reading a book, currently reading a book called Marathon Man by Bill Rogers. Um, I'm also reading Endure by Alex Hutchinson, but um, but I'm also reading Marathon Man by Bill Rogers, uh, one of the great runners of the 1970s and 1980s, and a guy that I think is kind of fascinating as well. He was a conscientious objector to the, the Vietnam War, uh, so he ended up working as an orderly in a hospital during that time instead. Um, but he happened to be the roommate of Amby Burfoot um, in 1968 when Amby Burfoot won the Boston Marathon. They also had a college teammate named Jeff Galloway, uh, which many people recognize his name as well, particularly if you're from the Atlanta area. Um, but anyway, uh, Bill Rogers uh, was very heavily influenced by Ambie Burfoot, and he talks in very glowing terms about him in his book. And so I do look forward perhaps to, to, to looking at what Ambie Burfoot's book, First Ladies of Running, is all about. And then one other one I did want to mention as well, that just as I was reflecting on our podcast and listening to it and thinking about all the, the various things we did, um, a book that got a lot of attention a few years ago, maybe four or five years ago, uh, when it first came out, but it's brilliant, uh, it was a book called The Sports Gene by David Epstein, um, and I should have mentioned that book as well. Um, it's an all-around fantastic book, and basically pushes back against the idea 
that the best way to achieve and the only way to achieve is by working really, really, really hard. Now, he's not saying that you don't have to work hard to be the best at your sport, but what he's saying is that even the people that we tend to say work really, really hard and have these huge work ethics, even they have certain genetic predispositions towards athletic success. And it's important for us to keep those things in mind when we're looking at them and praising them and and, and regarding them. Um, and so some pretty interesting things there uh, that David Epstein had to say, a fascinating book and, and lots of cool stories. Um, he, like Alex Hutchinson, like um, Matt Fitzgerald, uh, weaves in a lot of research into some just really good storytelling there. So I would definitely recommend that book as well. But by all means, please continue to let us know which books you liked and which books you think are worth reading um, because uh, we always appreciate good recommendations. So this week is Newsweek on the Most Pleasant Exhaustion podcast. Patrick's not here, as of course you know, um, and uh, normally when he is here, he chooses one piece of news, I choose one piece of news. This week it's entirely up to me, and I really couldn't limit myself, of course, to just one, nor could I limit myself to two or three. Or so we probably got to go ahead and just jump into it here. Uh, first piece of news I want to talk about is a big race that was uh, November 23rd to 25th, uh, 2018, just last week on the big island of Hawaii. Uh, it was the Ultraman world championship now those of you who are in the ultra community you undoubtedly probably saw it those of you in the multi-sport community you might have seen it uh, certainly if you're in the ultra multi-sport community like my wife is you probably saw the ultraman world championship uh taking place last week but um a quick word on it the ultraman world championship as the name suggests is an ultra multi-sport event um, and of course that means it's swimming biking and running but it, they do it over the course of three days and so on day one uh, they have a 10k swim it's an open water swim there um, and then they do 90, 90 miles on the bike so they transition directly onto the 90 mile bike uh, on day two they have a 171.4 mile bike and this year it was a particularly hard bike there were 13,000 feet of climbing in that 171.4 mile bike there uh, and then on day three they have a double marathon, a 52.4 mile run out in the heat there in the big island of Hawaii. Um, it's late November, but still pretty hot there on the big island. Um, and they're on asphalt there to do that final double marathon in the end. They take your time from all three days. They add it together and you get one big composite time there. Of course, you're sleeping, you're resting. It's a three-day event. It's like a stage race, basically. Uh, when my wife did a double Ironman several years ago, the clock didn't stop. She just did a 4.8-mile uh, swim, then a 224-mile bike, and then a double marathon, and the clock never stopped. 28 hours later, she was done with the race. Ultraman's a little bit different. Um, as we've said about a lot of different types of championships on this uh, podcast before, you qualify for Ultraman at lots of different events around the world, and this is their this company's one big capital event here in the big island of Hawaii. But anyway, um, Richard Thompson, who's a 33-year-old Australian, won with a total time over the course of those three stages in three days of 22 hours, 9 minutes, and 26 seconds. Uh, 321 miles total it was. Um, a 57-minute and 32-second win over a 42-year-old defending champion, Rob Gray of South Africa. Uh, so beat him by nearly about an hour. Uh, third place was a guy named Peter Vabrusik of the Czech Republic, a 45-year-old. Um, he was 1 hour, 22 minutes, and 34 seconds behind the winner, Richard Thompson. Um, Richard Thompson ran the second-fastest split on the third day. Um, he ran 6.56 for the double marathon on the third day of the ultramarathon. That's just under 8-minute pace. Um, 
The fastest run split, by the way, was a 651-47 by a guy who finished fifth place overall. He's from Slovenia named Miro Krigar. He's 56 years old. He was the oldest guy in the race, and he had the fastest run split at the Ultraman World Championships, which I just think is fantastic. Um, but back to Richard Thompson. He had the fastest bike split on day two. He did 820.05, which is about 20.5 miles per hour for 171.4 miles. Um, oh, with 13,000 point or 13,728 feet of climbing in it. So, you know, hugely uh, mountainous course there that he had to ride on the big island of Hawaii. Um, this is his first time doing the Ultraman World Championship for Richard Thompson there. Um, he has an impressive resume, though. He uh, set the fastest time ever in an Ultraman event um, when he won an Ultraman uh, in Australia in 2017. Uh, way back in 2008, he won uh, the, his age group, the 18 to 24 age group at the Ironman World Championship in Kona. Um, and then a year before that, he actually set his Ironman PR when he was 22 years old. He did 855. And so he's a, clearly a very established uh, Ironman competitor um, here and has gotten a little bit more endurance over the course of the last 10 years here. And um, to buttress that speed, and and he's now good over the course of three days. So, congrats to uh, to to Richard Thompson there. Uh, the women's winner uh, was Tara Norton of Canada. She's 47 years old. So, um, clearly, this is a, an event that that rewards a lot of uh, endurance built over time. Here, um, she led the whole way. She had the fastest split um, all three days for the swim, for the bike on the first day, for the bike on the second day, and for the double marathon on the third day. Her total time was 28 hours, 19 minutes, and 30. Five seconds. Um, she was an hour and 14 minutes and 55 seconds in front of the runner-up, Mary Knott, who is from Arizona. Um, and third place, one hour, 46 and 44 seconds behind the winner was Cynthia Bardis, who's from Pennsylvania. Uh, so congrats to them. Um, her day two time, um, uh, Tara Norton's day two time was 10.27.55, which is about 16.4 miles per hour for that 171.4 mile bike course um, with 13,700 feet of climbing there. Uh, and her day three double marathon, uh, so running a double marathon in the heat on the asphalt there, uh, she was just under 11 minute pace. She ran 9.34.49 for that 50, uh, 52. 253, 52.4 mile run. Uh, it took me a little while to remember how much is 26.2 times two. Um, she, Norton, Tara Norton, also has a pretty good resume. Um, she was second in 2016, uh, so a couple of years ago. This was not her first Ultraman World Championship. Um, she's also competed in Kona herself at the Ironman World Championship six times, um, and she finished the 12th overall woman there, the 12th age group woman there uh, a few years ago. Uh, in 2010, she set a bike split record, a course record for the bike split at Ironman Lanzarote, uh, which is the Ironman that's over on the Canary Islands, which is super hilly on the bike there. Uh, she also has an Ironman personal best of 932. Uh, so she's clearly a, a pretty fast Ironman over the short distances as well. And then now at age 47, she is uh, like uh, like the men's winner, like, uh, like Richard Thompson, uh, has a lot of endurance that she can spread out over three days. Um, switching gears here. Um, the India NCAA cross country championships you might've seen were a couple of weeks ago. We actually mentioned them when we were recording the last podcast, uh, a couple of weeks ago, we were saying that, Hey, they're tomorrow. So we'll talk about them on the next podcast. And we do want to talk about them today. Um, 
they were in Wisconsin, and we kind of joked about you know whose decision was it to put it in the NCAA Cross Country Championships in November in Wisconsin um, because isn't it going to be a little bit cold? It was. Uh, it snowed actually the night before. Two inches of snow fell overnight onto the NCAA Cross Country Championship course before they actually uh, uh, took the course there on Saturday morning uh, a couple weeks ago. Um, and fittingly, of course. Uh, a Colorado woman won, a Coloradan won, and the Colorado women's team won, as a matter of fact, as well. So both an individual and uh, and the women's team uh, from the University of Colorado won. Go Buffaloes. Uh, the woman who won was named Danny Jones. Um, she was not the favorite. The favorite was a woman named Winey Kalati of New Mexico. Um, and Winey Kalati was leading with 1,000 meters to go by about 20 meters. She had established a pretty good lead there. Uh, Danny Jones was able to stay with her, though, um, kind of kept hunting her. Um, and Jones is a 1,500-meter runner. She's a, a fast 1,500-meter runner. She's run about 430 for the mile. Um, she caught up with and she passed Kalati in the final straightaway um, and ended up winning by about three seconds there. So uh, just kind of stalked her there over the course of the last uh, kilometer there and was able to, to, to beat her. Um, the It was the first women's individual title for the University of Colorado since Kara Goucher um, won in 2000. Kara Goucher, kind of a well-known name in distance running circles these days as well, um, who went on to uh, to finish highly at the Olympic Marathon trials and others. Um, also, like in 2000, the Colorado women won, um, led by Jones and Michaela McKenna Morley, who has finished eighth. Uh, Colorado scored 65 points, um, which is just the fourth team in the last 25 years to score under 70 points. Quick refresher for those of you who don't know cross country all that well cross country the lowest score wins first place gets one point second place gets two points third place gets three points etc 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 that means and you score five runners on every team and so that means if your first guy finishes first your second guy finishes second your third guy finishes third first second third fourth fifth one plus two plus three plus four plus five a perfect score is 15 points the lowest point score you can possibly get is 15 points they scored 65 points which is is pretty low for that competitive of a race there um second place was new mexico the defending champion with 103 point oregon was 160 uh michigan was fourth with 213 and stanford was fifth with 232 georgia tech had a team there they went in ranked 30th and they finished 28th I'll take it as a Georgia Tech alumnus. So congrats to the uh, the Lady Jackets there. Um, after the race, they were talking to Janie Jones, and, uh, and she said, as I mentioned, she was happy about the fact that it snowed. She said, I wanted it to be more snow than it was. We wanted the hardest conditions because we've practiced having calm minds all season. We woke up, and it was like Christmas morning. We were like, woohoo, snow unquote. <laughs> um, so score one for the uh, the people who had the calmest minds and, and were most accustomed to running in the snow. Um, so it lets run.com there writing a little bit about this and they were talking about how good Colorado was and, and recalling what I just said about scoring. They said, maybe this will help everyone understand how good Colorado was on this day. If Danny Jones hadn't scored at all, if the individual champ was wiped off the scoreboard and Colorado was forced to score their number two through number six instead, they still would have won the race. Um, that's because Colorado's top six were all All-Americans. Their sixth runner was 30th in the race and top 40 All-Americans. So really, really impressive. They put six women in the top 30 in the entire NCAA at the cross-country championship there. So really impressive day there by the Colorado women. Um, New Mexico put three women in the top 10, and Colorado still beat them by a whole, whole, whole lot, as a matter of fact. Um, 
So New Mexico's score for runner-up, 103, is actually the lowest score for a runner-up since 1997. It would have won 10 of the last 20 cross-country championships, um, but yet they were more than 40 points behind, or about 40 points behind Colorado. That's how good Colorado was. Um, so super impressive there. Shout out to the Buffaloes. I know at least one listener, Lauren Fogarty, uh, who uh, who uh, joined with us to talk about the Boston Marathon way back in April here, uh, is an alumnus of, of the University of Colorado. So congratulations to all the folks who pull for the Buffaloes from Boulder there. Um, the men's race uh, was also a very exciting race there uh, in Wisconsin. Uh, with 400 meters to go, there were nine men still in contention for the race. And this is a 10,000 meter race, a 10 kilometer race. And with 400 meters to go, so just over a minute left in the race, there were still nine guys that could possibly win the race. Um, over the course of the next 200 meters, it got down to about four to go with four meter. They, they were about four wide. There was a guy named Grant Fisher from Stanford, uh, Morgan McDonald, who was from Wisconsin, uh, home team guy. Uh, Iowa State's Edwin Kurgat was there. Um, and then a redshirt freshman from Oklahoma State named Issei Rodriguez. And I'll talk to, you, talk to you more about him in just a minute. With about 100 meters to go, uh, McDonald, the hometown guy, got a little bit of space and he ends up winning by under a second over Grant Fisher, uh, who is a Canadian born American, originally from. Grew up in Michigan and goes to Stanford now. Um, Gotta love that the hometown guy won, uh, even though he is Australian. I'll talk more about that in just a second. Um, After the race, Morgan McDonald says, This race was 100% the reason I redshirted last year. It was all centered around this 2018 Nationals held in Madison, you know, with the Badger crowd. It was all about that. Definitely, it's the best win of my life. It is so special, unquote. Um, worth pointing out, Grant Fisher is now the 21st person to finish in the top five of the NCAA cross country three times, but he's never won a title. Um, also worth pointing out, it's been 10 years since an American won the NCAA men's individual title in cross country. Uh, 2008 was the last time that happened, and if a familiar name won that year, it was Galen Rupp uh, when he was running for Oregon back in the day. Um, the top underclassman was from Kenya, the third-place guy from Iowa State named Edwin Kurgat. Um, and so it's possible if he's going to be the favorite going into next year, it could be 11 years, um, but we'll see. Uh, there were four underclassmen from the United States in the top 10 today, um, or not today, but but uh, a couple weeks ago. Uh, the top underclassman from the United States was a redshirt freshman who finished fourth named Issei Rodriguez from Oklahoma State. Um, Issei Rodriguez, uh, kind of an unheralded guy, a couple of years ago, he ran solidly as a high school runner, but but not anything to stop the presses about. Um, and this was his first time ever running at any NCAA championship, be it cross country or track. And suddenly, with 150 meters to go, there he was. And so, congrats to him. And uh, hopefully, we're not going to be putting too much pressure on him over the course of the next little while. But it would be nice to see an American guy win the uh, the NCAA championship. So we'll see. Uh, in the men's team race, um, Northern Arizona, the Lumberjacks won their third straight NCAA cross-country title, uh, which is a super impressive thing to do. Uh, they're just the fifth school to win three in a row, and they were the first in 18 years. The last team to do it was Arkansas, who did it in 1988, 1999, and 2000. Um, and so really, really impressive. Um, they put all five of their scores in the top 30 uh, to score 83 points total. Uh, second place was BYU, um, coached by former Peachtree Road race runner Ed Eystone. Um, so really kind of... Uh, 
amazing races as always exciting races always at the ncaa championships there and so if you weren't able to catch them there's a little recap for you um wanted to, to shift gears here a little bit and talk about a couple of other quick pieces of news here um in the last little while um one thing that, that stood out that I did want to make sure I talked about is perhaps something that many of you have noticed. There's a growing movement inside of endurance sports, and it's actually kind of starting in the, the outdoors community, but there's a crossover between the outdoor community um, and endurance sports, particularly a crossover between the outdoor community and, say, ultra sports. Um, and it has to do with uh, environmentalism, and it has to do with um, trying to... to uh, preserve the spaces in which many of us compete and train. Um, and two pieces of news kind of related to that this week. The first one is that Patagonia, uh, who makes a lot of clothing, they're based in California, for outdoors uh, activities, um, uh, announced this week that they're going to take the $10 million that they're saving uh, from the, the Trump administration's tax cuts, and they're going to donate to environmental groups. Um, you'll recall, and, and we don't need to talk too much about this because it's beyond the scope of this podcast, uh, that the signature achievement of the Trump administration so far here in the United States is uh, the, the tax cuts that were passed in December of 2017. Um, they cut the corporate tax rate significantly from 35% to 21%. And so pretty much all corporations are saving some amount of money. Patagonia, as I just said, is saving $10 million. But rather than taking that $10 million and doing something with it has to do with their company, instead they're going to donate it entirely to environmental groups. Um, their CEO, a woman named Rose Marcario, uh, wrote on LinkedIn. She said, instead of putting the money back into our business, we're responding by putting $10 million back into the planet. Our home planet needs it more than we do. Um, she went on to say that the money was going to go specifically towards groups who defend the planet's air, water, and land, as well as those involved in the regenerative organic agricultural movement. Um, she called the tax cuts irresponsible, um, and she said that the uh, tax cuts benefit the oil and gas industry at the expense of our planet. Um, the founder of Patagonia actually went a little bit farther. Her name is Yvonne Chonard, um, and she said uh, in a press release, quote, Our government continues to ignore the seriousness and causes of the climate crisis. It is pure evil. We need to double down on renewable energy solutions. We need an agricultural system that supports small family farms and ranches, not one that rewards chemical companies intent on destroying our planet and poisoning our food. And we need to protect our public lands and waters because they are all we have left, unquote. Um, now, like I said, this is not just Patagonia being Patagonia or not just Patagonia, uh, you know, operating on their own. It feels to me and it seems to me and it looks to me as if there is a little bit of a movement that's kind of taking shape inside the endurance community and inside uh, the, the outdoors and, and ultra community. Um, Another piece from this week that reminds me of this and makes me think this and that, that definitely draws my attention um, is a piece that, that Dean Carnazzi's wrote in Ultra Running Magazine. Uh, it was called The Number One Issue Facing Our Sport. Now, Dean Carnazzi's um, is probably the only ultra runner that anybody's ever heard of <laughs> outside of the endurance sports world. And most people even inside the endurance sports world probably haven't heard of him. But um, Dean Karnazes is, is probably the only real true celebrity ultra runner there is. Maybe Scott Urich would be second, but but probably not. Um, Dean Karnazes uh, was well known a few years ago. He did 50 marathons in 50 states in 50 days. Um, he's done a wide variety of things. Um, he uh, he uh, has written several books, though, and he tours the country uh, talking about ultra running um, and uh, and encouraging people to take up an ultra lifestyle. Um, but 
uh, in his piece in Ultra Running Magazine, um, again, it's called The Number One Issue Facing Our Sport, he wrote the following, quote, California, where he lives, by the way, he lives in Marin County, California, where he says he moved, by the way, because of the clean air, but yet he's having to spend all this time running on the treadmill in the gym because of all the heavy fires that are going on out there. Anyway, quote, California is experiencing its worst fire season in the state's history, and by some indications, this is the new normal. Not only are wildfires becoming more prevalent, they're becoming larger in acreage. One reason I moved to Marin County, a place I can hardly afford, is the stellar air quality. Since we runners are so dependent on the air we breathe, Marin County seemed like a worthy investment. But the number of spare-the-air days has steadily increased, and my days in the gym have ticked up in lockstep. Not a welcome trend. And the problem of clean air is hardly unique to California. It's a global issue. Fixing this problem is not going to happen in our lifetime, and perhaps not in our children's lifetime, unless more is done. The globe needs a refresh, and that is going to take time and effort. Perhaps no other group is more dependent on the air we breathe than outdoor athletes. We are uniquely positioned to take a stand and to do what we can to turn this ship around. Yes, I'm getting preachy, and that is my intention. It may not be possible to change everything, but you can change yourself." Unquote. Um, he goes on to talk about how he's changing his own behavior. He got rid of his car, for example, and he's been running from place to place, you know, with groceries on his back and all that sort of thing. Um, and like he said there, he acknowledges that he's being preachy, but he does go on to encourage uh, those of us in the endurance community to be that guy, um, to be that person who does annoy other people and, and ultimately advocates for clean air and clean water. Because as he points out, and as I just read, we are very uniquely dependent on it. Um, and so... I'm not going to get all preachy on us, but I am interested to see where this movement goes, if in fact it does go anywhere. Personally, I'd like to see it go someplace, um, but but we'll see whether it takes ends up taking shape. I do know that inside the trail running community, uh, the movement towards having no cups has taken hold so strongly that that I believe most of the trail races I run next year are no cup races. Um, and of course, that's only one part, and it doesn't necessarily have to do with air quality specifically. Um, but just the the it does speak to the growing overlap, I think, between outdoor sports and the environmental movement. Um, so we'll see where that ends up going. Um, last piece of news that I did want to mention here um, on this Sunday news night where I'm solo here without Patrick is to talk about Paul Sherwin. Um, this news actually is just a piece that I noticed uh, over the course of the past couple of hours. I'm recording this on Sunday evening. We normally record a little bit earlier on Sunday. And I'm kind of glad that I did because um, the news only hit the wires over the course of the past couple of hours that Paul Sherwin died at age 62. Uh, for those who don't know, Paul Sherwin is a former pro cyclist who really made a name for himself and became well known for being a broadcaster um, of cycling. Um, he was born in England in Lancashire in 19. 56, but he grew up in Kenya. Um, he had some success as a swimmer, but then he started uh, cycling at the age of 16, really turned his focus to cycling at age 16. Um, he went pro in 1978 at the age of 22, and he rode his first Tour de France that year. Um, he would go on to ride seven tours in, in total. Uh, he finished five of those tours to France. Um, he ended up gaining a reputation for being uh, very long-suffering through, through some very difficult mountain stages for being particularly tough. Um, his biggest successes came in the last couple years of his racing career. Uh, he won the British National Circuit Race Championships, which is basically like the, the crit championships in 1986. Uh, and then he won the British National Road Race Championship in 1987, which was his last year as the pro. Um, 
He was best known, as I said, for commentary. Um, in 1989, he started off with the British Broadcasting Channel 4 doing cycling races, um, and he crossed paths with another guy who was doing a lot of cycling commentary named Phil Liggett. Um, if you're not certain of who Phil Liggett is, or if you're not sure who Phil Liggett is, you've probably heard his voice before. He has a very well-known voice inside endurance circles, and for a long time, they used to actually get him to um, be the voice of Kona um, when they would do the NBC special broadcast um, uh, a month or two after the Ironman World Championship. Uh, but anyway, uh, Paul Sherwin and Phil Liggett kind of partners in crime in uh, in broadcasting there. Uh, the two of them together covered 33 tours de France uh, from the 1980s into the, the 2010s here, as well as a lot of other races. Um, they commented for NBC Network, for Versus, uh, for SBS in Australia, uh, among many other broadcasting networks as well. Um, he lived in Uganda, actually, and had some holdings and some gold mines there. Um, that's where he died, um, and that's where the word came from over the course of the past couple hours. So condolences to his family, and uh, rest in peace, Paul Sherwin. Well, that'll do it for this edition of the Most Pleasant Exhaustion podcast. Uh, appreciate your joining with us, and Patrick will be back with us on Thursday for our research podcast and next week for our race reports and Vaporfly reviews. We hope you'll join us then. And that'll do it for another edition of the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast brought to you by ITL Coaching and Performance and Blue Pineapple Travel. Once again, you can reach out to me, George, at george at itlcoaching.com. You can reach out to Patrick, patrick at itlcoaching.com. You can send us an email at pleasantpodcast at gmail.com. You can also reach out to us on Twitter, at pleasantpodcast, or on Facebook, facebook.com slash pleasantpodcast. Don't forget to reach out to our sponsors as well. You can find ITL Coaching and Performance at itlcoaching.com, at itlcoaching on Twitter, and on Facebook at facebook.com slash itlcoachingandperformance. Finally, of course, Blue Pineapple Travel. You can find them at facebook.com slash bluepineappletravel, bluepineappletravel.com, and on Instagram, instagram.com slash bluepineappletravel. Thanks again for joining us, everybody. On behalf of Patrick Ollinger, this is George Darden. We'll see you next time on the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast. Thank you.